Well, good morning, Berean. It is good to see you all this morning. Yes, Pastor Steve mentioned the last time I stood up here other than the first service was when we got married uh, 12 years ago, so it's neat to be back with you all. Uh, fun fact, I, I think that my wife and I were Pastor Bill's first wedding here at Berean all those years ago, so uh, but I've enjoyed him for quite a long time. But anyway, I am thankful to have the opportunity to share the Word of God with you this morning to kind of get us started and to kick off our, our topic for the day, I want to read to you some excerpts from the journal of perhaps America's greatest theologian. In these entries, he's describing his journey of faith. And as I read this, I want you to notice a few things. First, I want you to listen as he describes his attitude toward faith, and also listen for what he does in his life. So listen for his attitude toward faith and what he does. He writes, I had a variety of concerns and exercises about my soul from my childhood, but had two more remarkable seasons of awakening before I met with that change by which I was brought to those new dispositions and that new sense of things that I have since had. So what he's going to do here is describe these two seasons of his life that, that occurred prior to his being saved. He writes, the first time when I was a boy, some years before I went to college, at a time of remarkable awakening in my father's congregation, I was then very much affected for many months and concerned about the things of religion and my soul's salvation and was abundant in duties. I used to pray five times a day in secret and to spend much time in religious talk with other boys and used to meet with them to pray together. My affections seemed to be lively and easily moved. And I seem to be in my element when engaged in religious duties. And I am ready to think many are deceived with such affections and such a kind of delight as I then had in religion and mistake it for grace. But in process of time, my convictions and affections wore off. And I entirely lost all those affections and delights and left off secret prayer, at least as to any constant performance of it, and returned like a dog to his vomit. And went on in the ways of sin. Indeed, I was at times very uneasily, especially towards the latter part of my time at college. But God would not suffer me to go on with any quietness. I had great and violent inward struggles, till after many conflicts with wicked inclinations, repeated resolutions, and bonds that I laid myself under by a kind of vows to God, I was brought wholly to break off all former wicked ways and all ways of known outward sin and to apply myself to seek salvation and practice many religious duties, but without that kind of affection and delight which I had formerly experienced. My concern now wrought more by inward struggles and conflicts and self-reflections. I made seeking my salvation the main business of my life. But yet it seems to me I sought after a miserable manner, which has made me sometimes sense to question whether it ever issued in that which was saving, being ready to doubt whether such miserable seeking ever succeeded, I was indeed brought to seek salvation in a manner that I never was before. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words, 1 Timothy 1.17. 
Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of a apprehension and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. Those journal entries are from Jonathan Edwards. And I chose to share those with you because this morning we're going to talk about the topic of regeneration or the topic of the new birth. And I think that Edwards is an excellent illustration of the importance of understanding the topic of regeneration. By all accounts, Edwards grew up with a correct understanding of God, of Christ. He grew up in the church. He strived after holiness. He was a deacon in his church at a young age. He sought salvation. He practiced spiritual disciplines. At times, he seemed to have affections toward God, and yet, by his own account, it wasn't until he was in college that he was born again. The term born again is a common one. You hear it all the time, right? It's common in churches. It's common in the culture. Often, we hear the word used interchangeably with the term evangelical, and I think that presents a bit of a problem uh, for us as Bible-believing Christians. I want to illustrate that to you. Um, In his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World?, Author Ron Sider points out that self-described born-again believers are more likely than their neighbors to divorce. They engage in domestic abuse as often as their neighbors. Only 6% of them tithe. They found that white evangelicals are more likely to object to having black neighbors than Catholics and mainline Protestants. They found that 80% of evangelical youth have premarital sex compared to 88% of secular youth, so hardly a discernible difference. And they found that 46% of evangelicals think premarital sex is okay if it's within the context of a committed relationship. Hopefully, the problem with that is pretty apparent to you. As his title points out, if these people are born-again Christians, then born-again Christians don't live differently than the rest of the world. And those statistics seem to suggest that evangelicals find themselves in the same place as Jonathan Edwards. They have religious duties, as Edwards described, but they lack any real religious affection for God and his commands. As we take up the topic this morning of being born again, I want to point out that the way that Barna and Cider and Pew Research and some of these other groups use the term born again is vastly different, vastly different than the way the Bible presents it. 
If someone's way of life is indistinguishable from that of the world, if they sin as much as the rest of the world, if they are as greedy and covetous as the rest of the world, if they don't love any more than the world, then they haven't been born again. To suggest otherwise is to suggest that unregenerate hearts have no more victory over sin and no more Christ-likeness than the person who is far from God. And I don't believe that is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that being born again causes a radical change in the hearts of people. And so you have this tension, right, between what the Bible is presenting and what this research seems to be presenting. One author I read summarized the tension between the Bible and the research this way. He wrote, the Bible says that the research is not finding that born-again people are permeated with worldliness. The research is finding that the church is permeated with people who are not born again. Let that sink in. The research is finding that the church is permeated with people who are not born again. Ultimately, my hope this morning is to explore that tension. What exactly does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be regenerated? What are some of the effects of being born again? If I'm suggesting that there's a radical change, then what does that change look like? Now, this is a huge topic. I mean, we're not going to turn over every rock and flip over every leaf. We're not even going to begin to scratch the surface of what it means of how we are born again or why we need to be born again. But my hope is that by the time we're done this morning, you'll have an idea of what it means to be born again and what it looks like. We're going to spend a lot of our time in John chapter 3 to get started, and then we're going to move over to 1 John chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. Uh, John is interesting. He talks more about regeneration in his gospel and his epistles than any other biblical writer. And here in John chapter 3, we have perhaps the most famous statement of being born again. And we're going to see in this text four kind of components of regeneration to give us a definition from which to work this morning. I'm not going to unpack these in a lot of detail, but my hope is just to give you kind of the 30,000-foot view of what regeneration and the new birth are. So first off, let's, uh, let's read the text, and then we'll, we'll kind of walk our way through it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to get us started, I want to point off the the first thing that we should recognize about the new birth is that it is something done to us. It is not something that we do. 
In verse 8 there, you notice that John says that the wind blows where it wishes. And you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And he says, everyone who is born of the Spirit is the same way. Just like we don't have any control over the wind, right? We don't have any control over being born again. Think about that hurricane earlier this week. I was uh, on the tip of Mexico last week in Cancun, and you have a hurricane, and we're going, well, let's just hope that thing doesn't take a 90-degree left turn toward Mexico. But we can't do anything about it, right? The wind goes where it wants. And the same thing is true of those who have been born again. We don't have any control over it. It's a work of the Spirit. First Peter tells us the same thing. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, according to his great mercy... He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's not something that's done, it's something that's done to us, not something that we do. The second thing we can learn about the new birth from this text is that the new birth results in new life. In verses 1 to 3, John makes sure to tell us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, this is often an overlooked aspect of the story, right? We can just read he was a Pharisee and kind of breeze over it. But I think it's significant in understanding what he's trying to teach us here. Pharisees were the most religious of all the Jewish groups. Nicodemus would have had his own set of religious duties, as Jonathan Edwards told us. Uh, he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament law, and he likely would have been very self-disciplined. But Jesus comes to him, and he says, hey, you don't need new religion, right? You don't need new religion. What you need is new life. He tells them you need to be born again. And that's the idea behind a new birth, right? It's one of life. Even though we believe that life begins at conception, all people celebrate that birth brings a new life into the world. I, I, you know, sometimes you go through life and you just don't realize certain things like, at birthday parties for 30-some years, you sing, happy birthday. But we had our daughter uh, a little over a year ago, and I'm in the hospital, and she's born, and the nurse walks up to me and hands me the baby and says, happy birthday. And, like, a light switch went off in my head. Like, yeah, it's a birthday, right? <laughs> like, I felt really dense. But <laughs> it was just a reminder that new birth brings life into the world. So this is kind of a shocking statement that Jesus makes here. How, how could Nicodemus be born again? He was, he was already alive, right? He was physically alive, but he was spiritually dead. You might think of Luke chapter 9, verse 60, where Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's he talking about? Dead people can't bury dead people, right? What he's saying is that the spiritually dead people should stay behind and bury the physically dead people. And, and so despite Nicodemus's religious duties, his involvement as a, as a Pharisee, he isn't spiritually alive. He needs this new spiritual life. And so that's the second part of our definition. The new birth results in new life. The third thing I want you to notice is that the new birth results in a new nature. Uh, look with me at, at verse 5 here in John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, there's a lot of different ideas out there about what he means when he uses that phrase, born of water and born of the Spirit. Uh, Nicodemus himself was confused, right? He asks Jesus what he means when he uses that phrase. And I think that Jesus' response here gives us a glimpse into what he really meant. In verse 10, he answers Nicodemus and he says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Jesus expected him to understand what he was referring to. It seems to suggest that Jesus was referencing something from the Old Testament that Nicodemus, as a Pharisee and teacher of the law, would have recognized. And I think he's referencing here Ezekiel 36, where water and spirit are closely linked with the new covenant promises. It's going to be up on your screen here, so you don't have to turn there. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Notice in that text, you have all three elements that Jesus references from John chapter 3 coming together, right? Under the new covenant, God promises to sprinkle clean water on you, cleansing you from all uncleanness and idols. Then he promises to give you a new heart and a new Spirit, And so these references to water and, and spirit are, are there. Um, but you, more than that, you have to remember that Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again in order to what? In order to enter the kingdom of God. And here in the very last verse, in verse 28, we see that those people who are sprinkled with clean water, who are given this new spirit, are those who dwell with God as his people. In other words, they enter the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of parallels between these two texts. I think when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born of water, I think what he's saying is that Nicodemus needs to be cleansed of his guilt. His sin needs to be washed away. He needs to be forgiven. And when he speaks of Nicodemus being born of the Spirit, I think what he means is that Nicodemus needs this new heart and this new spirit. The heart of stone needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. We hear it all the time, right? Heart of stone, and it can be really easy to just kind of gloss over what he means when he uses that phrase. I've got a small rock here. It's a little bit smaller than uh, your typical heart. Uh, But I want you to notice something about this rock. This rock is unresponsive. I can talk to it. Hey, rock, how cold was it outside last night? Nothing, right? I can squeeze it. I can poke it. I can prod it. I can throw it on the ground. Does it respond to any stimuli whatsoever? No, it's unfeeling. It doesn't do anything. That is the picture of your heart prior to being born again. You can't respond to God. You can't respond to spiritual stimuli. You are dead. 
But when the Spirit of God comes upon you and causes you to be born again, he replaces that heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. It's a heart that's alive. It's a heart that's, that's radically different from the heart of stone. It's a heart that feels. It's a heart that's responsive to God. And so when you think about that, I think what he is demonstrating here is that the new birth is radical, right? It's radical. Not only does God give you supernatural spiritual life, but he cleanses you and he gives you a new heart and a new nature that is radically different from the one you had before. So that's the third part of our definition. The new birth results in a new nature, a final observation that I want to make from John chapter 3 here is about the nature of the new birth. And that is that it results in eternal life. Ultimately, the new birth results in eternal life. If you think about that, we kind of unpacked this reality earlier, but Jesus told Nicodemus that unless he was born again, he wasn't going to enter into the kingdom of God. We don't have time to unpack all the intricacies of that phrase, but let me just summarize it by saying what that means is that unless a person is born again, they will not be saved. They will not experience eternal life. They will not go to heaven. They will suffer the eternal wrath of God. But to enter the kingdom of God is to be saved, and it's to be given eternal life. As Ezekiel pointed out, it's a picture of dwelling with God. So I want to kind of sum all these different pieces up together and give us a definition of the new birth before we go to 1 John chapter 5. Here's the definition that we have about the new birth. It's a supernatural work of God upon a spiritually dead person where God gives to them spiritual life, replaces their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, gives to them his spirit, and ultimately gives to them eternal life. So now that we've kind of got a, a definition, if you have a Bible, turn over to 1 John chapter 5. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking some of the effects of the new birth. So if someone's been born again, how do they live? How does this new birth express itself in the life of a believer? And 1 John is a book that deals extensively with the reality of the new birth birth, but I, I want to camp here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, so let's read that together. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we see the first effect of the new birth in this text in verse 1, and it's pretty straightforward. The person who has been born again believes that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to notice the wording here. It's quite particular. He writes, everyone who believes, it could also be translated as everyone who is believing, 
has been born of God. Grammatically, what you have going on here is an action that occurred in the past. So the verb here for has been born is a a verb describing something that occurred in the past, but has effects that continue on into the present. So what are the effects? The effects are believing, right? So the person who has been born again will continue into the present believing. You can't separate the two. If someone believes, then they are born again. And if someone is born again, then they believe. They're they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. If someone's been acted upon by God, then they believe. Now, John doesn't take the time to explain what he means when he uses the term belief here. He kind of just assumes that the audience is going to know what he's talking about. So for those of you who who might be wondering, uh, I would sum it up as this. Uh, Very simply, to believe that Jesus is the Christ means to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, God in human flesh, who reconciled us to the Father, paid the penalty for our sins, and accomplished salvation for us by coming to earth, living a perfect life, free from sin, and shedding his blood, and dying on the cross, ultimately before rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So when John uses that term belief, that's what he is describing. Someone who has been born again believes those truths. And as we move on to kind of the the next effect of the new birth, it's important to recognize that this effect of belief occurs prior to every other effect that we're going to look at. You can't have the other effects without first having belief. So the order here is very important. We see the second effect of the new birth here, I think, in the second half of verse 1. If you look down at that, speaking of the same group of people, John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Essentially what he's saying here is that the believing person who has been born again loves two things. He loves not only God, but he loves God's People. And we should expect that, right? If the person's been born again, if they've been given this new spiritual life, they've been made into a new creation, it's just natural that their affections are also reoriented. You see, the new birth is not just some academic exercise. It involves the affections of the heart. And he says that your affections are going to be reoriented in two directions, both vertically and horizontally. You're going to have affections for God, and you're going to have affections for his people. And so that's the second characteristic of the born again person. But John doesn't stop there. He puts kind of a lot of meat on this bone and he he goes on to explain it in a little more detail in the next couple of verses. If you look at your text there at the beginning of chapter two, he uses the phrase by this. And he uses that to indicate that these next few verses are going to explain the statement that he just made about loving others. He's going to explain first in verse 2 what it looks like to love God's people, and then he's going to explain in a little more detail in verse 3 what it looks like to love God. So let's look at those. In verse 2, he says that the person knows they love the children of God when they love God and obey his commandments. I read that and I went, huh? That's not what I was expecting. <laughs> that seems a little, a little backwards, right? It seems completely flipped around from verse 1. And if you're familiar with the book, what he says at the end of chapter 4. And so 
you're anything like me, that's not what you expected to read. And I had to, to wrestle with it for a while. And I think he's doing it for a very particular reason. Um, why does he make the point to say that we know we will love others when we love God and obey his commandments? You know, I think we like to think that, that, that love is kind of a, a romantic or a friendship-based idea is a 21st century invention, but it's not. People have been twisting the understanding of love since, you know, the beginning of, of time, and it's become watered down to be nothing more than romance and looking out for other people, I think. And so I think that's why John here is careful to point out that love as an effect of the new birth must come after belief. If you don't have this new spiritual life from God, and if you don't love him, then you really can't love anyone. Sure, you can do, you can do nice things for people, right? You can, sh- you can shovel your neighbor's walk. You can help people out. You can bring food and clothes to people who are in need. But all you're really doing is showing them kindness on their way to hell. Is that really love? I don't think that's the kind of love that God has in mind. He, he points out that love does all of those things, right? But that's not the end of it. It has an eternal purpose. You really can't love others in a way that makes a difference for eternity if you don't have belief, right? If I'm not a believer, all those nice things that I do for people aren't going to have an eternal effect, which in reality, I'm just making people comfortable. And I think that's what John is addressing here. And so he corrects those potential misunderstandings and says that true love for others expresses itself first in real belief and real affection for God and obeying his commands. If you obey God's commands, you're going to wind up loving the people around you, right? Right? Two big commands. Love God, love other people. But you have to start with love for God. And that's John's point in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he explains what it looks like to love God. And there's really two different aspects to this. First, a person who loves God keeps his commands. They keep his commands. In other words, I think another result of the new birth is a love for God that expresses itself in obedience to him. Now, let me clarify a few things here before we go any further. Uh, love is not only obedience to commands, but John's point here is that it is not less, right? Love has to include obedience. You cannot be someone who says they love God, but you are not obedient to him. That's just a misnomer. Those two things are separate, right? Um, the born-again person is going to be obedient. The interesting thing about this, if you think back to our statistics, American Christianity seems to have a very large category of people who fall exactly into that camp. They say they're born again, they say they are Christians, and yet they aren't obedient. And that is just not a biblical idea. The person whose heart has been changed from stone to flesh is going to keep God's commands. Now, let me clarify something else here. Um, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, and John is not saying, that if you're born again, you are perfect, right? You don't get born again and become sinless. That's not the way it works. We, we believe that, that sanctification is a process where we are increasingly becoming more like Christ as we struggle with sin. And in that struggle, sometimes we do not overcome um, come sin, right? You can't perfectly keep God's commandments, but I think the point here is that 
to kind of just to ask the question, is the pattern of my life one of command keeping, right? Is that the pattern of my life where when I fall short, I turn to God in confession and I receive his forgiveness and cleansing and I move forward in Christ? Is that the pattern of my life or is my life characterized by sinfulness without a consistent turning to him in confession, If that's the case, there's probably a pretty good chance that you may not be born again. So that's the first aspect here of of loving God, is keeping his commandments. Uh, John makes this clear in 1 John 1, chapter 8, kind of this tension. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even though John tells us to obey commands, he's not expecting perfection. What he is expecting is a person with a regenerate heart to turn to God in confession when they fall short. But if keeping the, the, the commands is, uh, we're supposed to be obedient when we keep the commands, John clarifies kind of the attitude that goes along with that. He says, keeping his commands is not burdensome. This is the second uh, aspect to loving God. If you think back to Jonathan Edwards' testimony, there was a period in his life where he was practicing those religious duties that he talked about, right? But there was no affection. There was no delight. His life was characterized by what he said was inward struggle and misery. Inward struggle and misery. Do you just do what God asks you to do because you know it's the right thing to do and you go to church and you know you got to follow the rules? Do you just obey God because you feel like you have to? Are you following God's rules begrudgingly? Do you spend a lot of time wishing that you could do something that God says you shouldn't do? If so, your attitude of command keeping might be one of carrying burdens. But if keeping commandments isn't supposed to be burdensome, what is it supposed to be? What attitude should we have? I think the psalmist gives us an interesting picture of this. Even prior to being indwelt by the Spirit, uh, he writes, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven thirty that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God is not in the business of creating rules and regulations that are not beneficial and do not affect the heart. Sure, God God has high standards, right? If you read the New Testament, you come across a lot of what I like to call grace standards. But he also gives us the grace to be able to live up to that standard. And if keeping the commands of God feels burdensome to you, you might be trying to keep those commands under your own strength rather than under the power of the Spirit that is given to people who are born again. This is so important. This is kind of where John brings the whole thing home here in 1 John 5. The, The final effect of the new birth that we see in this text is essentially that idea. It comes from verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4 here. He writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So the final effect of the new birth this morning is that the person who has been born again overcomes the world. Now this is, this is really cool, I think. He just described that love for God involves keeping those commandments and doing it without a burdensome attitude. And that can seem like a daunting task. I mean, if we're being honest, sometimes it's like, 
That's a lot, right? It can be overwhelming. But the encouraging part is that the born-again person can keep those commands because they have been given power by God to overcome the world. The person who has been born again never strives for godliness alone. They never pursue holiness under their own power. God is always working in them and through them. You see, God doesn't just start the work and leave you out to dry, right? What does Philippians tell us? He who is faithful to begin the good work is going to what? going to bring it to completion, right? So sanctification is not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? It is God working in you, Philippians says in chapter 2, verse 13, both to will and to work. God works on your attitude and your actions through the power of his spirit. And so he gives that spirit to us so we can overcome the world. But what does John mean when he uses that term world? I think that's another term that we hear a lot, we sometimes take for granted. Um, John chapter 2, I think verse 16, helps us to understand a little bit about what John is talking about here. In chapter 2, he writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. He's essentially using an appositive there to describe what he means by world. He says, all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we could probably preach a whole sermon on that phrase by itself, but one commentator I read sums it up this way. He wrote, that could be summed up as desires for what we don't have and pride in what we do have. When we don't have what we want, the world corrupts us with covetousness. And when we do have what we want, the world corrupts us with pride. We've all experienced that, right? The world's constantly telling you that you need new things, whether they're new material things or they're new experiential things or they're new relational things. Whatever they are, though, they are contrary to love for God. You can't love those things and love God at the same time, right? It's kind of the love for idols, love for God tension that we see throughout Scripture. And the only solution to that problem is the new birth, Because in the new birth, we overcome the world. The supernatural power of the Spirit breaks the power of desire and pride. But how does it do that? I love this text. It's just so so neat. How does it cause someone to overcome the world? Look at the rest of verse 4 there. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, it is belief in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world that overcomes the world. It is faith that gives us victory over sin. It is faith that allows us to keep God's commandment. And it is faith that leads us to love other people. I think sometimes we like to remember, hey, salvation's uh, by grace through faith. Well, guess what? Just uh, sanctification is also by grace through faith, right? So God is constantly working in our lives for us to overcome the world. And it's kind of neat here. He really brings his whole argument full circle. Remember in verse 1, he started talking about the idea of belief. And now here in verse uh, 5, he, he talks again about that faith that is grounded in the new birth. He's brought his argument full circle back to verse one everyone who has been born again believes and that faith leads to love love for god and love for others it's really a cool text 
My hope this morning is that you walk out of here wrestling with the reality of the new birth. The new birth isn't some set of religious duties. It's not church attendance. It's not prayer rituals. It's not adopting an ethic. It's not even affections. You can be just like Jonathan Edwards and go through a set of religious duties for years and years and maybe enjoy it and not be born again. And I think in a church this large and probably in every church across our country, there is likely someone who is doing just that. They're going through the religious motions having never been born again. They've never been given that new heart or that new life or that new nature or the new spirit. They might intellectually understand the gospel, right? But God hasn't done the work. They don't have faith. They don't have affections that are turned toward God and his people. So if that's you, what do you do? If if you realize that you've never been saved, what do you do? Luckily, the Bible makes this fairly simple for us. You call out to God in prayer. You admit to him that you are a sinner separated from God in need of his grace. And Romans tells us that you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And if you do that and truly believe, you can rest on the promise here from 1 John 5 that those who believe have been born of God. For those of us, I think, that are in Christ, there's, there's great comfort in these truths of regeneration. We have been reminded this morning from these inspired texts that the new birth has given us new spiritual life. It has removed those hearts of stone and changed them to hearts of flesh. It's made us responsive to the work of the Spirit, and it's given us a new love and new affections for God and for others. And while the new birth does not guarantee sinlessness or perfection, we can go forward in confidence to serve Christ and to follow his will for us because we know that we have been born again and that he has overcome the world. What a marvelous truth that is. I pray that it affects your hearts this week. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful for your work on the cross. We are thankful that you died so that we might have eternal life and be reconciled to you. And Lord, we are thankful for your spirit that indwells us and helps us to be more like Christ. I pray that the truths of your words will sink into our hearts this week. May we examine ourselves through the spirit. May we wrestle with these truths. Lord, it's a high calling that you have laid on our lives. And while we are not perfect, We do desire to love you by being obedient. And so I just pray that we will be sensitive to the Spirit this week. May he lead us in that obedience. Once again, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the Spirit that indwells us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.